Hello, I'm Julian Pagini and welcome to the latest in an ongoing series of microphilosophy podcasts looking at how different philosophical traditions around the world shape the way we think. They've been made in conjunction with the Berggrün Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. This is the first podcast of conversations with participants in one of the centre's workshops in Stanford, California, about the relationship and tensions between harmony and freedom. Our discussion today brings in perspectives from India, Africa and Europe. Joining me are Rajiv Bhargava, Director of the Institute of Indian Thought at the Centre for the Study of Developing Societies, Anton Koch, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Heidelberg, and Thaddeus Metz, Distinguished Professor at the University of Johannesburg. Our conversation begins with a series of edicts erected around India by Ashoka. Rajiv Bhargava explains. Ashoka was an emperor in the 3rd century BCE. He left behind a number of inscriptions, all of them on either stone or iron pillars, which is why they've survived. There's one of these edicts, as they're sometimes called, was saying that all pasandas, which, again, difficult to translate, perhaps we can call it sects, must dwell everywhere in his kingdom. And this was a call for kind of cohabitation and everything. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that key to this idea of of living together harmoniously was some idea of self-restraint. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the key idea was bachagutti, which is uh, restraint in speech. So one has to realize that this is a context in which oral speech matters. You can, people do things with words. They can use them to completely destroy uh, other people and to to praise themselves to the sky and, you know, glorify themselves. These are things that used to take place in the public domain all the time. So it is in this context that he uh, emphasized restraining one's speech. He allowed you know, different Bashandas to intervene in each other's discursive domain, but only under certain conditions. He didn't want them to hold back, expressing radical differences in criticizing uh, other Bashandas. But what he wished to do was to ensure that they do so only if they have good reason to. Uh, they do so when there are appropriate uh, opportunities or conditions, uh, occasions, and also always moderately and not immoderately. And the reason for that, of course, is that he doesn't want to break communication. He doesn't want to disrupt the process of either the growth of every pasanda or the growth of the common ground, which allows these different pasandas to flourish. So Ashoka accepted that there would be uh, disagreements and temporary discords, but he thought that that shouldn't make people uh, either split from one another, live separately or live back-to-back uh, in mutual indifference because that would undermine the, the growth and, and, and the flourishing of every single person there. Now, one thing that struck me about this idea was mm-hmm. I think we tend to think we being people like myself who have grown up in the West as toleration as something kind of you extend to other people kind of as a, a kind of a courtesy. But there's a sense in which you, you had this phrase, our duties towards others cannot be neatly separated from the virtues mm-hmm. we cultivate in ourselves. You think it's, there's a sense in which you have to have a certain kind of attitude of humility towards your own views yes. as well as to those of others. Absolutely, right? absolutely. There is no way that you can extend various uh, forms of concern and respect for 
others unless you have a certain uh, disposition and a certain comportment about yourself. That's yeah. the point about being humble. There are ways in which you can disparage others. One is by directly attacking them and the other is by not attacking them directly but keep praising yourself all the time which is another way of belittling others, right? I mean, you, you can humiliate people like that by constantly saying that you are the greatest, that you have truth. The, the implication of that is that a stature is, uh, is insignificant, you have lower status, and more importantly, a person can perform a certain duty to others, not simply because that person demands it from you and you have to comply with that demand. So the, the obligations can't just be externally imposed either, you know, either legal or moral, they really have to come from within. Mm. And they'll come from within only if you have certain qualities, uh, which enable you to do that. And those are the kind of virtues that are indispensable for fulfilling moral obligations of various kinds. Yeah, so the sort of background to that seems to be sort of a, a kind of pluralism, which I think, you know, traditionally a lot of people say is very strong. In India, is it is it an idea which has any sort of resonance or in in Africa or Europe or tensions between views there? Thaddeus Metz. Certainly, in the African tradition, it's it's another salient theme that uh, the fundamental aim of life uh, should be to live a genuinely human life, to realize oneself. But the way one does that is by uh, entering into communion with other people, and so you get uh, a similar kind of uh, overlap between personal growth, self-development on the one hand, but uh, respect or aid of others uh, at the same time. But is that is a pluralism as strong in Africa, though, or would there be more of an assumption that there'd be similarity amongst of viewpoints and ideas? Yeah, that's a good question. The kind of ethic I just expounded is recurrent, uh, and is certainly the dominant uh, approach to thinking about how to live uh, amongst uh, traditional uh, sub-Saharan peoples. But within that ethic, there's a sort of a tolerance built into it. So the way to realize yourself is to commune with others, but communing with others often amounts to helping them for their sake. And they might well have different views or different ways of life. I mean, their own particular good might be different. Um, so in that sense, uh, there's a kind of pluralism or, or tolerance of, of difference. But at an intellectual level, uh, that's, that's something else. There's an idea of communion which is, has a certain resonance there, which is a, a strong value in sub-Saharan um, culture. And one thing you, you talk about there is how in that kind of culture, consultation is like a, a value in itself. There's a high value placed upon that. Can you just say a little bit about what do you mean by that? Yes. Um, so traditionally speaking, political disputes tended to be resolved only consequent to some kind of consensus. So most uh, indigenous African societies would have a king, but the king wouldn't make a unilateral decision. Instead, what would happen is he would often get all those affected by the issue to sit together uh, and talk under a tree until they came to an agreement and he would defer to that. Yeah. Or there would be a council of elders, usually male, unfortunately, but usually the elders would have some kind of legitimacy granted to them from the populace, and they would come to some unanimous agreement and the king would defer yeah. to that. That's a recurrent theme uh, that you'll find in many traditional sub-Saharan societies. And it seems to grow out of this idea of communion. Mm. So if, if part of what is involved in communing is sharing a way of life, it's going to involve sharing power. Mm. It's going to involve sharing decision-making. There are hierarchies in these societies, but I think you'd say that these hierarchies are kind of tend towards or should be 
sort of minimal in some way. And that's because, not because of any particular value placed on autonomy in the Western sense, but well, if it's not for that, what is it for? It is, I would again speak of this sharing of a way of life. I wouldn't say it's a matter of autonomy. That value isn't salient uh, in this tradition. It simply isn't. But wanting relationships that are even-handed or involve a kind of cooperative participation or are jointly uh, engaged in, those kinds of relational values are salient. Right. and seem to underwrite this drive for consensus. And so subordination is, is basically interferes with this sense of communion and yes. coordination, right? And that's what's bad about excessive hierarchy. Those structures that, or patterns that you were talking about, they reminded me of what is going on in Brussels. Uh, on the supra-individual um, level there in Europe, it's informal uh, gathering together not a king, but uh, 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 some authority there, get, uh, getting the different representatives of the European states together in informal relations of power, of dependency and independency, and having it all ne negotiated out. It's very like uh, the, the thing you described that's going on there on the individual level in, uh, in Africa. The difference might be, though, is that I suspect, although you might seek consensus uh, in the European context, when it comes down to it, uh, they would rest content with majority vote. And that would not be the case in traditional Africa. They would keep talking, <laughs> by and large, until they really could come to some unanimous agreement about how to move forward. But that happens at Brussels, between the European states. Exactly that. Rajiv Bargav. I'm not skeptical about the idea of communism, but... But I do want to raise this question. Communion seems to be possible when you have a comprehensive shared way of life, which is possible in smaller communities. The problems that were faced in Ashokan period were that all these different religio-philosophical groups mm. were compelled to live together because of the growth of new towns. So all of them could not afford to live separate from each other or indifferent to each other. Mm. They were constantly encountering each other. Mm. And here you have to accept that there is a massive, uh, radical, deep diversity and still find a shared or a common ground, which is much harder. And you've got to live with not only radical difference, but also with massive disagreements, sometimes even conflicts. Mm. So how does one work out uh, a social and political arrangement which one can morally endorse where everybody can still live together amicably uh, in harmony. Yeah. That was the big question for Ashoka and what? I wonder you know, what resources there are for, for that kind of thing well, before, in other traditions. Before Thaddeus answers that, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting in the European context to think of that as well because there are certain countries in, in Europe which have traditionally had a kind of consensus-based idea to politics, the culture in the Netherlands around Poland was basically consensus and all the Scandinavian countries, and they're finding that's under threat now because the cultural, social, ethnic, religious homogeneity is, is no longer there. So is this, is this an idea which perhaps has trouble working in genuinely diverse societies? That's a good question. I mean, the first thing to say is when we speak of communion, at least not by definition, are we talking about similarity? or sameness. Mm -hmm. So a, a nice way to think of communion in the African tradition is roughly in terms of what English speakers mean by love or a, a broad sense of love or, mm -hmm. or friendliness. 
So part of it involves sharing a way of life. We do these activities together on an even-handed basis, and we have a sense of togetherness. And furthermore, we try to help each other, and for the sake uh, of one another, it's more or less what we mean by friendliness. Uh, and that, I think, captures the notion of communion well. And if we think of two friends, the friends don't have to be the same. Uh, they can be quite different uh, in their interests and temperaments uh, and goals. Uh, but you can still have a friendly relationship between these two individuals. And so my suggestion would be, in principle, you could have uh, uh, something like that between uh, two different groups. Right. Social I mean, civic friendship is an idea which I thought is slightly different from communion. But we can think of communion in terms mm. of friendship. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy with that. Yeah, I think that's, that's mm, what yeah. I would want to say. Now, moving on, Anton Koch, I mean, uh, these ideas are, are both, I think, very attractive. But they seem to rest on, on certain assumptions around a, a kind of a humility and a provisionality about our beliefs, a sort of openness. Now, you say that in the European culture, the dominant tradition has been what you call the transparentist one. Mm. And, and this doesn't sound to me like it's in accord with this. Could you say a little bit about transparentism? Well, yeah, that tradition has no job to do for the concept of harmony. Harmony is something else, something that you can talk about on Sunday, perhaps, but <laughs> during the work, um, transparentism, when it gets to the really important things, is the idea that we can cope with reality by getting reality pinned down to the latest detail in principle. While there is another strand in the European tradition, I think, not so dominant, more recessive, that I called hermeneutical holism, which has a job to do for the concept of harmony. And according to that tradition, harmony and freedom are not direct opposites, and harmony is not something that drops out altogether, but they are complementary. Mm. So and this tradition then is closer to many traditions out of Europe, but the sad story is that it's not that strand that gets globalized. It's mm. the other one, transparentism. <laughs> well, let's talk about this transparentism a little bit to try and perhaps mm. clarify what it is. If I was to stop someone in the streets and say, oh, you're transparent, they wouldn't know what I was talking about, right? But in what ways would their perhaps beliefs or assumptions betray that transparentist outlook? Well, for example, those discussions that from a European perspective may seem a bit weird and outdated between scientists and Christian fundamentalists in Northern America. Both are transparent as opposite predilections. Mm. So one secularized one party, the other isn't secularized. But both have the idea that you can pin it down. Either God knows it all or physics, mm. future, future physics will know it all. The idea then that we as human beings could be modeled in our thought after the machines that we Device that we understand the last detail, computers, for example, that we start to conceive ourselves on the analogy of computers or conceive our brains as computers and talk metaphorically about computers making calculations, which, of course, is a metaphor. They don't really calculate. It's the program, the programmer who does the calculating. So we begin to think of ourselves as something which is transparent through and through and um, think of reality as something which can be calculated down to the last detail, that would be transparentism. And, and the hermeneutical alternative rather looks at the world not in a kind of shoulder-shrugging, anything-goes ways, presumably. That's not the alternative to this. So what is the alternative? The alternative is that you take into account not only possibility, but I think it's actually so, 
that reality at its core isn't like that. The real isn't such that it could be known completely. The real is more, as our Chinese colleagues were talking uh, about the Tao. It's something fluid. It's something which uh, goes into an interplay of manifesting itself and at the same time hiding itself. And we are part of that. Of course, we can figure out many things about that process of manifesting and hiding those diverse ways of this, let's call it Tao, uh, whatever, and uh, cope with reality conceived in that dynamic and holistic way with a lot of intelligent strategies. But we must not think that we are master of that process, mm. that we can pin it down. Or that God is master of that process. There is no master of that process. So, you know, the transparentist trend in Europe and in the West, you presumably think has negative political consequences. Yes, sure. But uh, luckily, at a political level, the differences can be accounted for in legal and peaceful ways. Mm. So there are rules, procedures. And I think that the transparentist tradition has a lot to add to our whole outlook. Yeah. The mistake is that we think that this transparentist picture is the last word. Of course, we can do a lot by explicit regulations and rules as would go together with the transparentist picture with blueprints for democracy or for legal and fair um, communication, all that is fine. Um, the only thing is that uh, we must always be aware that different cultures, different contexts may have their own ways of coping yeah. and they should be taken into account. Yeah. I mean, just to finish up, I mean, Anton was suggesting there that when it comes to ex the export of ideas, it's the transparentist one which is getting most traction. Uh, to the extent that, and I don't know whether you do agree, to the extent that you might agree that the perhaps traditions in both India and Africa have been closer to what Anton's describing mm. as hermeneutical. Um, do you see those things being uh, threatened and diminished by Western influence, or are they holding their own? Well, if the idea that there is you know, one truth and everything else is false, that idea is very closely associated with transparency then I think in many versions it has infiltrated into our traditions mm -hmm. in a much bigger way than we would have liked. It's come in many secular forms, in scientism, in nationalism, and in Stalinism and Maoism. These are, from the perspective of these local respectable traditions, uh, these are pretty pernicious ideas. <laughs> uh, and they, they are not very helpful in a harmonious living because uh, they immediately exclude people mm. and the only way in which you can live together is by conversion, right? Uh, otherwise you have to live separately or just get lost. <laughs> and those are threatening. Yeah, I think it's right that given this, this dichotomy between transparentism and, and the alternative, the traditional African societies were not transparentist. They tended to be theistic societies. They believed in a personal God. But unlike uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, Islamic tradition, traditional African societies have nearly invariably held that we don't know the mind of God. God's too big, God is too distant, and so there's not a tradition of revelation uh, in the form of a prophet uh, or a text, and there's also not a tradition of proselytizing, of trying to convert uh, others. 
So uh, to the extent that that's been the tradition in sub-Saharan Africa, I do think the modern West, uh, the influence on that culture has been has been to, uh, to change it much more towards uh, what's being called uh, uh, transparentism. Okay, we have to call it a day there, but thanks very much for talking to us. So Rajiv Vargav, Thaddeus Metz and Anton Koch. There will be more global perspectives on freedom and harmony and also on hierarchy and equality in upcoming podcasts. To keep up to date, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Berggrün Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.berggrün.org. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>